1: All while saving businesses billions—that's Wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder.
0: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them with Royal Caribbean? You don't just go to the beach; you visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip; you ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new; you rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation, this is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Brown, the host of the channel. I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history with a focus on environment and science. And today we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew Flax about his new book, Cultivating Knowledge Biotechnology, Sustainability, and the Human Cost of Cotton Capitalism in India, published by the University of Arizona Press in 2019. The slow, persistent dangers of pesticides, rural inequality, debt, and even the complex threat of suicides. Cultivating Knowledge tells a story of how farmers in rural South India evaluate agricultural success through shifting calculations of social meaning, performance, and economic aspiration. Dr. Flax moves beyond the hidden links of consumption and production to concerns about how people engage with global change on the level of the farm field. By choosing to plant either genetically modified or certified organic cotton seeds, farmers risk their livelihoods by participating in diverging courses of sustainable agriculture. The farmer's choice of seeds reflects a performance of transformation regarding knowledge and agrarian s- s- sensibilities within rapidly changing socioeconomic and material realities that are influenced by both a colonial past and the neoliberal present. Dr. Andrew Flax, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for um, you know doing the interview with us. And th- this book is uh, this book, book is super insightful and and really interesting. But before we we get into into the meat of the the book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. My name
1: is Andrew Flax. I'm a cultural and environmental anthropologist. I'm a reformed saxophonist and classical musician. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Elverson, Pennsylvania, in eastern Pennsylvania, and found anthropology, as many people do, uh, midway into my college career. And now I have the great joy at Purdue University of being that person for other people when I teach big intro to anthropology here at Purdue. Uh, I got my doctorate in 2016 at Washington University in St. Louis, where I was working with Glenn Davis Stone, who's been studying issues of biotechnology in India, uh, since 2002. Uh, this book is born out of a lot of work that I did as my dissertation research back there at Washington university, but also as a follow-up project that was uh, funded in part by a whole group of people to whom I'm very grateful, the department of education. Uh, National Geographic Society, the American Institute of Indian Studies, uh, among others. Um, And it was a great intellectual debt to all sorts of people who combined my interests in rural stuff and decision-making and performance in the moment and improvisation all around these larger questions of what does a seed really tell us about what it's like to be alive nowadays, that kind of anthropological connection between our socio-cultural, political, economic, ecological ways of being in the world, and the material realities that we have to face, depending on which kinds of cards were dealt and what geographies we have to live in.
2: Very good, and and that's it's uh, you're you you it's awesome. I, I think we'll we'll talk later about how you do build in the idea of improvisation um, into into these these cultural and and socioeconomic performances. Um but but before you do that and, and and kind of building off of um the way you already kind of introduced the book, I guess one question I would have would be since this was your dissertation um turned into kind of turned into a book, is is there what what was the what was the difference between what you did with your dissertation and then how you expanded it into the book? Yeah.
1: Uh, that's a great question because the answer is every word is different. Uh, it's it's not something that everybody does. I think this used to be more common for an older school of academic than myself. Uh, but I, I felt like I, I had an interesting kind of story that I wanted to tell here with this book and transforming it from a dissertation. This is something I think about a lot now because I do a lot of writing for different kinds of audiences, sometimes academic, sometimes more public facing, sometimes more policy facing. Uh, All writing is for a very specific kind of audience. And my dissertation, like anybody's academic dissertation, is fundamentally for like six people. Uh, And if those six people are on board, then I'm happy and I get a doctorate and, uh, you know, science can progress. And then i might write other pieces out of that that are academically focused for particular subsets like if i publish in uh you know american anthropologist that is primarily for anthropology audiences if i publish in the journal of political ecology that's for people who are interested in this theoretical idea of political ecology uh if i publish on a blog it's for the readership of that of that blog right um now a book is a far more general audience because anyone can hopefully pick it up, uh, whether they buy it or whether they uh, pirate it off of libgen.ro uh, <laughs>
0: and,
1: and get and get the resources that way. Um, this book happens to be open access. So of course, there's even uh, more legitimate options to, to get it without paying for it. Um, in, in a book, a lot of that effort is maybe introducing a field or a concept that somebody hasn't picked up before. Like people who read this book might be really interested in fashion. Or they might be really interested in anthropology in general, or they might be curious about biotechnology and GMOs, or organic agriculture. And so, part of the work of writing a, a book is to make yourself accessible to this broader group of people and try to make your points explicit. And you know, easier said than done. I think is is certainly the lesson for any kind of uh, larger writing piece like this. It's it's a big thing to go out and try to make really specific, nuanced points that are also understandable by a wide range of people um, from a a wide range of different kinds of disciplines. Some of our great teachers in this might not even be, you know, the the kinds of scientists that we're used to listening to in this, but we look to Bill Nye and Carl Sagan uh, for great examples of science communicators who can make really complicated ideas legible to other people. Um, and certainly, that's a big part of if if you go on to teach uh, teaching larger introductory classes, is to make these complex ideas meaningful to people who don't come in with a whole lot of prior knowledge.
2: Yeah, no, that that's such an interesting genealogy, or I guess a journey that 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 you uh, that you just explained in terms of writing the the PhD and then and then making it making the book complete something with this, with the same ideas I'm guessing, but, but more, more digestible for, for a larger audience, which is, which is for someone who's trying to navigate how, how the heck to write a, uh, an MA thesis in itself, um, is, is something I've been contemplating a lot. So, so that, that gives me some hope that, um, (laughs) that I'm not just going to be, be stuck in this theoretical loop of, of, of too much jargon and, and things like that, um, moving forward. So, so thank you for that, that answer. And, um, and I, your book is super accessible, even though it's dealing with, a uh, with so many intersections of, as you said, fashion and, and political economy, political ecology, biotech and ag. Um, I, you know, I, I maybe, maybe a good point to, to start, even though it doesn't really launch off and immediately in the book would be just kind of the history of, of cotton in, um, India. Would you, would you want to talk on, on that a little bit and then how we, we kind of get from, from pre pre pre-colonial, uh, pre-colonial period to, to kind of the contemporary neoliberal period.
1: Yeah. The history of cotton is a great place to start with this because cotton in a very real way begins in India This idea of the novelty of certified organic agriculture is something that's really only been around globally since like the 90s in the form that we know it now, or the novelty of genetically modified organisms, which have really been around since 1980, legally speaking, uh, with the Chakrabarty diamond case in the United States. And then on a global scale, they've really only been around since 95 or so with commercially successful crops that confer insect resistance, BT crops, uh, and crops that confer herbicide tolerance, uh, those that are resistant to glyphosate roundup and more recently, a suite of other kinds of pesticides and herbicides. Cotton is like one of the oldest crops that we, that we have. It has a really long usage. It's been, it's unusual in that as far as its human usage it was domesticated twice in completely different parts of the world in mesoamerica as well as in uh, south asia places that were separated uh, from sustained contact for thousands of years of sustained human contact and millions of years from the botanical side of things cotton is really useful it was used before it was domesticated so it was a wild cultivated and semi domesticated crop for a long time. It's at least 5,500 years old in it's domesticated form domesticated in the sense that it has genetic and, uh, phenotypic physical changes that we can observe in the archeological record from cottons that we have around today. And that's because it's super useful to people. You can make nets out of it, which was probably it's main it's main purpose in Mesoamerica nets and flotational devices as well as what we mostly use it for today, which is clothing. Uh, Cotton has this really fun linguistic history. We can trace it through all kinds of different intermediaries. If you are an English speaker, and you are tracing how you use cotton through Arab intermediaries, then you're probably riffing off of the Arabic cotton, uh, or katun, which is coming through that region. If you're had a lot of historical trade in Europe through Turkey and through Iran, you're probably using words like pamuk or pambe, which are coming through a different linguistic tradition. If you're going uh, the other direction outside of South Asia, if you're going um, east toward Japan or toward uh, Indonesia and, and Myanmar and Southeast Asia, then you're probably using Hindi derivatives like kapas. And this reveals all kinds of long-term political economic trajectories and interconnections for this extremely useful crop that had linkages of power and empire interwoven in it. My favorite example is this imagination that uh, comes through this convoluted European history, uh, where people who were used to flax uh, linen and people who were used to wool, which comes from sheep, uh, really didn't know what they were looking at when they first started having cotton and wearing cotton. And there were these fantastic imaginary bestiaries that were drawn up. My favorite is the travels of Sir John Mandeville, who was an Englishman, who was reproducing half truths that he was reading back from Herodotus and his histories about this plant that had little lambs that would come down and graze and then go back up to the safety of the plant. Uh, back when the when the day was done, this is reproduced in <laughs> the vegetable lamb of Tartary, uh, which is another imaginary creature that was thought to exist through parts of the Middle Ages in Europe, and part of this survives in contemporary German and Scandinavian languages with Baumvul, which is tree wool. So you have all kinds of like fun cultural history and really clever political economy history that we can trace through these linguistic heritage of of different words for for trade goods that reveal who was in charge, who had different kinds of power, uh, who was in charge of trade routes and economic routes at that time. A lot of it going back to, at least in Europe, Asia, and North Africa, going back to South Asia, because that's where this crop was, and that's where the real seats of power for growing it and distributing it were. Which makes it all the more ironic that by the time that we get To the 1990s, we're talking about cotton crisis in India, which has had thriving, powerful cotton industry for thousands of years. Cotton during the colonial period is this uh, really powerful, really wealth making crop that goes to enrich metropoles, places like Manchester, but also places like Boston. India provided a lot of the cotton that was worn and woven throughout the British Empire. The United States, and this is great history that's covered by the historian Sven Beckert. the United States overtakes a lot of that production because of the use, this combination of settler colonialism, the expropriation of indigenous lands and the genocide of people living there, and the replacement of those lands with primarily European overseers and primarily enslaved Uh, laborers from Africa who then are growing this crop and creating through slavery and violence uh, an economically uh, profitable and competitive crop that beats out the injustices and poverty of South Asian cotton up through the Civil War in the United States. In 1860, the Southern Confederacy decides that they want to forced Europe's hand in intervening in the American Civil War by stopping the sale of any cotton. That turns out to be a terrible idea that backfires because it means that a lot of capital cannot then get into the South and fuel that economic development. The Northern Army decides to blockade those ports once the South realizes that this was a terrible idea. And by that point, a lot of the economic engine for cotton, which was a major driver for development, had then switched back to India. So India is really a a major part of this, with the exception of uh, American enslavement, war capitalism. India has been central to this story for a very, very long time. Still a third of the cotton that's grown on earth is grown in India. And right now, around 95% of that since 2008 or so is genetically modified, which makes for a really start question of how can there be crisis in something that is so persistent over thousands of years and has so much power enmeshed within it
2: yeah that's such a long complex history and i'm sure you're just you're skimming the tip of the tip of the iceberg with it as as well um uh, but but it's it's really it's really neat to to see and and I, that's another point you make in in the book on top of what you were just saying is that the, the, these crises, these cotton crises that, that happen, um, in the 90s and into 2000 are, are the, this historical and, um, material reality, um, that, that can't be kind of surplanted by, by the, uh, by GMOs just as a kind of magic bullet, single answer type thing and, and, uh, type solution. And, and so I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about just kind of the, the GMO or, or or the the genetically modified cotton, especially as it's it's juxtaposed against the the organic um, cotton seed.
1: Yeah, and I should say historians uh, don't come at me. I promise I, I'm doing my best to, <laughs> to learn all about you. Um, and and I reference uh, at least some a couple of really great historians who have worked on this particular issue uh, in the books of Becker and his history of war capitalism in the Atlantic, uh, Sandy. Uh, Hazari Singh who has worked extensively on cotton commodification and Sumi Guha, who's also worked on cotton commodification in the colonial and uh, late colonial and early post-colonial periods. Um, So there's a lot in there. I know it's there. You're just better at it than me. So I'm going to tell the anthropology story of this. Um, Cotton in crisis becomes a particularly charged idea, not because, uh, Cotton is technologically like ill-suited to India, right? So hopefully, I've made that point that cotton has actually been grown in India for a really long time, and there's a really important and long-standing history there. Uh, so the, the the better question really is why is it that cotton becomes um, untenable or dangerous or newly dangerous at this particular moment? And a lot of that has to do with the Green Revolution and the kinds of agriculture and infrastructure that move into a lot of rural smallholding India post-independence, which is itself its own book and topic. The short version of this is the series of infrastructural changes that happen both with respect to irrigation and roads like physical infrastructure, but also a social and political infrastructure for subsidies in minimum support prices for commodities produced and also maximum retail prices for different kinds of agricultural commodity inputs that are uh, then entered into the agrarian market. We combine that with a series of land reforms that limit how much land an individual can own, and suddenly we have new conditions for new ways to gain agrarian wealth, a lot of which work out really well for an initial class of landowners, especially post-independence. This is something um, that Akhil Gupta and E.R. and Preeti Ramamurthy, in particular, have written about how a certain rural class was able to take advantage of early opportunities with the Green Revolution and the changing rules of agriculture. And then by the 90s, we got, and in the 2000s, there's a second wave of people who are trying to strike it rich. And they've already seen a whole rural class actually succeed by these rules of infrastructure and controlled markets and different kinds of agricultural technologies, except that for them, they've inherited rules that are somewhat different. Maybe they don't own all their land and they have to pay taxes or they have to uh, rent land effectively from landowners who made some money and then moved to cities. Uh, Perhaps they are working on soil that was exhausted during some of that early green revolution years. Perhaps they're working on land that is marginal to the centers of the green revolution infrastructure. And they don't have all of that uh, irrigation facility or road connection or political clout to get around maybe a a tax break or a a market that needed to be opened that some initial investors and and land uh, managers had back in the early days of the green revolution. But you have this group of people in this second wave of the green uh, revolution in the nineties and two thousands who are dealing with a new kind of agriculture. And plus at this time in the nineties, the Indian economy is liberalizing. So we have new conceptions about how the role of the state should be. Not that the state should not be there, but what the role of the state should be in providing uh, subsidized inputs or buying things from commodity producers. We have new ideas about what the role of private industry should be and how it should be regulated. We have new ideas about key resources and how they should be distributed, things like electricity and water, especially with an urban and rural divide as to who should get what kinds of of resources in that sense. And so, into this, we have a lot of people who are trying to make it rich in cotton. Cotton being a a cash crop, being a high end crop, Um, cotton being something that, like, Wheat, like rice, like crops across the world during the Green Revolution 30-year trajectory are being increasingly intensively sprayed for pesticides, crops that have increasing water requirements and lands that have increasing fertility requirements in part because of that intensification and industrialization of agriculture in these areas. So you have a perfect storm for people who are trying to be successful as they see it, who have a model of success, but don't have all of the groundwork for that of people who are trying to, um, create new wealth and follow that model, but might not have the same kinds of ecological or political or material resources to do so. And who are at the same time facing new challenges from land degradation or ecological pressures like pest attacks in particular, the the pesticide issue and pest resistance is something that gets seized upon in the late nineties in particular. And a big driver of that is because of this phenomenon of farmer suicides. Farmer suicides we see in response to neoliberal agrarian reforms around the world. So this is not unique to India. Um, India might have had particularly unique conditions in the sense that India uh, has a lot of wealth in it. India has a lot of opportunity in it as a democratic state. Uh, India has a lot of media attention that can be paid to these kinds of issues. And in a particularly aggressive um, fourth estate in that sense with uh, smaller media companies and a lot of rural press coverage and really aggressive attention being paid to people who are in these marginal communities, at least in, in from a media sense. And so this gets a lot of media attention that farmers are killing themselves and they're killing themselves poetically by drinking pesticide. And there's this crest um, that goes up to around 2000, or sorry, 1998, 1999, of farmers who are getting a lot of publicity because they're drinking pesticides, which is horrible. It's a horrible way to die. Uh, It's extremely vivid and it's poetic because it's related to this idea of the key expensive agricultural input. So the solutions that begin to be bandied about are technologically focused around this idea of how do we make life better for farmers through this question of agrochemical use. And by the year 2000, there are two really clear globally supported technological solutions to that problem that would get rid of agricultural use. Why in cotton cotton is particularly pesticide intensive, and you have this particular swath of farmers, uh, the spike of farmers who are committing suicide within the cotton sector in, uh, 1995, I believe that this study was done. Uh, about 45% of all the pesticides sprayed in India were sprayed on cotton, even though cotton only takes up 5% of the agricultural land. So it's incredibly pesticide intensive. Biotechnology offers one kind of solution through hardware, plant this seed and this seed is produces its own insecticide. And that means that you as a farmer, don't have to spray as much. That means that you don't have to purchase as many pesticides. So you save some money. And you're also providing an ecological benefit by not broadcasting a a biocide, broadcasting something that kills a lot of life. Some of it harmful, some of it likely beneficial like pollinators and bee species. On the software side of that, there is a whole package that you might adopt and that's certified organic agriculture. And both of these technologies become available to farmers as global alliances that they might link up with in the year 2001. And so we have this unusual circumstance where we can ask a pretty profound political ecology question. What happens when we're faced with something that looks like a choice, with how a farmer might manage this complex political, social, ecological question of what seed to plant? And once all of that is put together, what kinds of lives are people able to lead as a result with something as? Seemingly simple as the choice of a seed. What kinds of impacts might we have? So 2001 opens up the possibility for these, these two different options. And that uh, 10 years, 15 years on, that's what I was there to look at was what's the aftermath of being presented with these two options? And ultimately, is choice even the right way to be speaking about this experience, this human experience of planting seeds here in this context?
2: this neoliberal economic imperative that, that these, uh, that these um, farmers are are facing. uh, And 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 everybody, right? Because
1: that's the whole, that's the whole conceit of neoliberal economic worldviews, that everything could be a choice. You're getting an MA. (laughs) That's a choice, right? And that's a, that's a particular economic investment that you've made. You know, I, I'm, I studied anthropology and classical saxophone. Those are clearly economic choices that I made to maximize my long-term capital investment. Um, it's a very limiting way of, of looking at the world, but it's one that's become so dominant that we can even play with that idea and ask if it correctly um, captures the the behavioral phenomena that we as social scientists are there to, to be looking at.
2: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And then looking at it, and I, you make this point, I think, throughout, but I think it might be it comes up the most in in your fourth chapter, where you're really looking at the the gen- genetically modified um, side of things. Is you have that choice, but then the the farmers almost become a consumer of um, of the of the cotton, and and they're they're going to these markets where there's so many choices. It, it raises a, a question about authority and, and understanding the knowledge of, of how these, these biotechs work. Would you like to talk further on that? The, the language that I came
1: across for this is something that I owe great debt to, uh, Professor Talia Dan Cohen at Washington university for, uh, who had an office nearby mine and graciously early on in my dissertation agreed to, um, have some conversations with me and look over some of my work, uh, that nexus between being a producer of something and being a consumer of something is part of the the neoliberal experience, right? You should, all choices can be most accurately mediated through a marketplace, and so if you're a farmer, you should just make the right choices to buy the right stuff, and that will allow you to move forward. And that, and in fact, that's freedom, and that's desirable, and that's the best way to do everything. Um, there's a whole body of economic, consumer economic research into how many choices is the right number of choices. And this stuff is fascinating as an American uh, blessed with a bunch of kind of silly choices. Like I can go into my local grocery store and look at hundreds of varieties of mustard, which is cool, I guess. Uh, that's like one view of freedom. And I can make my decision based on all of this. The problem with that is of course, that I might not know what kind of mustard I want. Not all mustards are created equal. If I'm just doing it by the price and they're all of of a similar price, I'm left with a further confusion. So maybe I just choose it by the label maybe. And this is this phenomenon called choice overload that uh, professor Dan Cohen was telling me about. Maybe I get so frustrated by the, the, number of choices that I actually just leave the store because I'm irritated and I don't really know what to do. And that, maybe that's happened to someone who's listening to this. I don't know if that's, Matt, perhaps that happened to you at some point. You found yourself overwhelmed by the varieties and just said, you know, it's not worth it. I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere else. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: I feel like this might happen to students who are like looking through courses at universities. If there's 30,000 courses that are being offered as electives, I mean, who's to say, that like anthropology is better than the history of the West is better than underwater basket weaving. Like those are all, those aren't really the same kinds of choices, but we should stop there because that might sound a little silly to us. Cause my choice of mustard or maybe which elective I take doesn't really like determine if my kid can go to college and it doesn't really determine if my family can pay for a wedding or, get out of debt or pay back our investment from kind of an unsavory character later on in the neighborhood, except that those are the choices that are faced by farmers. And that's why this is a different kind of consumer decision. And to boil everything down to choice in such a confusing market leaves farmers with so little recourse that they might consider something like a suicide. That intersection of so so much choice And so much uncertainty leaves you terribly unmoored with this decision that's incredibly, incredibly important, the seed that you plant. The idea that you would plant something that your entire livelihood and future depends on, that you don't really have any knowledge about, is incredibly damning to this idea that choice is the best way to think about this. And choice is, in fact, the best way to run this important sector of the economy. In, I don't necessarily get into all this with the book, which is goes back to our, our original comment about different arguments for different audiences. Uh, but part of the fun of being an anthropologist is using all sorts of different methods to triangulate your results. And so I would talk with farmers over multiple years of research about how they made choices, and I would like ride along as they made uh, decisions at the seed store. But then I would also track those decisions through yields. I would track them through the social influence of their neighbors and using geographic comparisons, trying to build models of influence between neighbors and space. I would look at other kinds of variables relating um, to other kinds of seeds, like in their maize planting or in their rice planting. Cotton is fairly unique in this. In rice, a lot of farmers are pretty stable with their choices and have got really sophisticated reasons for choosing them. But in cotton, we're doing a lot of choosing by the label, and while that might make a lot of sense for my choice of mustard, and while that might make seed companies a lot of money, and it might be a really good way to say that this particular kind of technology, like a GM seed, is is a really uh, is really popular, which it is. That difficulty in choosing the particular seed, because at this point there's now in the marketplace of the country. Uh, There's well over 1,400 different particular seed brands you might choose from. The fact that that choice is so difficult is incredibly destabilizing to this key issue of what makes something sustainable, which is the larger base of farmer knowledge. Or if we're using these dramaturgical metaphors, it's that repertoire of knowledge that can be drawn upon to make a decision or a choice or an improvisation in the field at that moment. If we destabilize and erode that knowledge through a choice overload, then we're in a very poor position to make a lot of cascading choices and management decisions in sustainable agriculture. Organic ag offers a particular kind of solution to that, but it is unstable um, in its own ways. And we can, we can talk about that later.
2: Yeah. It's interest. The idea of the choice overload is really interesting because it almost goes against the, the early capitalist ethos of like standardization and trying to, to universalize different products or finding like having that one label that everybody goes back to with something like the standard oil blue can or or whatever you have 1400 different choices. And, and, and you make the comment in the book that each year the farmers would go with a different seed. And, and just because that's what they heard was growing best. And, and that's what the bigger farmers were, were using. So it creates like this different hierarchy, but, but not one that's necessarily based off of like a rigorous, um, scientific, like imperialism as, as we would expect, which, which seems kind of, it seems disorienting. Um, it it was incredibly frustrating as like a,
1: uh, as a PhD student doing this research, (laughs) <laughs> because I was convinced because everybody was telling me, I was convinced that it was these generationally wealthy farmers who had a lot of status in the village. Um, big farmers is like the local term for that. And big connoting social status as well as land holdings, as well as kind of a generational wealth and expertise. I was convinced because everyone was telling me that these people were driving the decisions. And on a, on a very micro level, that might've happened. Like if you worked on that, on a big farmer's field and you were planting cotton as well on your own land it's a lot more likely that you asked them to like pick up some seeds on their way back from town rather than that this big generationally wealthy farmer would like ask a, a day laborer to go pick up some seeds whatever they think is best like that kind of flip wouldn't really have happened so that might influence some of those decisions there but those little idiosyncratic moments were really unstable over time And I had the benefit of tracking seed choices over six consecutive seasons. So these big farmers who everyone thought were really driving these local trends, they're also caught up in these fad cycles of intense seed popularity and then intense seed abandonment that everybody else is in. They're not ahead of the curve. They're not uh, making a different kind of decision. They're also essentially just choosing it because they heard it was popular, even when they're part of the reason that everybody heard it was popular to begin with. It's maddeningly unsatisfying when you're looking at quantitative data. Like I had these uh, beautiful scatter plots that had no trends <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> oh, no. Like I think R squared was um, like 0007 on uh landholding as a as a correlating as a correlated variable to to seed choices and I was like I have pages and pages of negative results and then this you get this beautiful realization as a qualitative social scientist oh wait I have negative results that means that there's something more complicated happening because people are still doing stuff just because my variables are wrong doesn't mean that life has ceased to exist we're making decisions based on some other factor and sometimes the answer is i don't know we're all kind of mixed up in this together there isn't a great prevailing logic and that's probably why this decision can get s- so desperate and have such high stakes
2: yeah that's that's interesting too that that it's so it's so complex that people couldn't people were relying on on each other's voices even the, the 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 seemingly authorities are are not able to do it that's that's really interesting and and that really goes into it to what you talk about throughout and particularly at the at the end I think in like chapter chapter 6 where you're talking about performance and and this idea that people are are effectively performing on an everyday framework either in front of their neighbors. And then there's also, they're trying to perform to, to go to the market and they're performing in front of um, the, the NGOs and, and those authorities, especially when it goes into the, the organic farming. Um, Would you, would you want to talk about this performance of, of trans transformation that, that you identify um, in terms of how these farmers are, are, creating these new and or trying to perpetuate, I guess, personas, if that's, if that's even correct in itself?
1: Well, I leapt on performance as this way to talk about what's happening, because I was so dissatisfied with choice, because choice really wasn't working for me, both in the sense of I didn't think it was very accurate, ethnographically speaking, and it kind of perpetuated this neoliberal language that I was being so critical of. So it felt icky. For, as a technical term, uh, to keep using choice. And I came across this idea of performance, which has uh, got a long history in anthropology and sociology through figures like Irving Goffman, and then this idea of performativity explored by people like uh, Judith Butler. But this idea of improvisation and performance comes up in agriculture, especially as a result of the work of Paul Richards. Uh, who is an English scholar who worked for years in in Sierra Leone and in uh, different parts of um, northern sub-Saharan Africa on agriculture. And then also uh, he's he's done a, a lot of work on Ebola and responses therein uh, more recently. And Richards had this idea of agriculture as a performance in the sense of agriculture is something that draws on this repertory knowledge but always has to change in the moment. And this really appealed to me as a way of explaining what it was that was happening, especially if I could add on some of those performativity layers and that presentation of self layer from Irving Goffman, the Chicago sociologist, uh, and read that into agriculture as more of a social act than as something that is strictly technological. And suddenly, everything that I was saying made a whole lot more sense. Why is it that farmers are disregarding seed packet instructions? Why is it that farmers are leaning hard into bragging about their yields and how many insects that they've killed? Why is it that farmers are going to these great lengths of having public deaths, which suicides are even beyond the point when the Indian government had suspended or made it far more difficult to gain payments If you had this uh, registered farm suicide, which is part of the reason um, that so many were so well documented to begin with, especially in the early days uh, of the 2000s, in part because you would get a a payout from them through state insurance programs. But why would they continue in, in such numbers after this had gone on? Performance was this way of asking about the social purpose of agriculture, Like, what are we doing this for? And what kinds of benefits do we get on genetically modified cotton farms? A lot of that answer was really difficult to articulate outside of the neoliberal agribusiness framing. I'm going for good yields because good farmers have good yields. It's a kind of a a circular logic of cash cropping that makes a lot of sense from like a ag econ 101 sort of perspective but it really collapses it when we look at the actual decision-making. If you don't know, and there's not a whole lot of good first-hand information to go off of, in this environment, these farmers are behaving a lot like consumers in confusing markets everywhere do. They go with what's popular. They go with what's well-advertised. They are, are likely to follow the advice of an expert if they've gotten that advice kind of recently. And that's exactly what we see in the trends of social learning and and institutional incentives to choose something. But it leaves out some of that day-to-day stuff that we can see with performing for an audience. Because in many ways, a farm is a very public stage. This is why we've got uh, farm signs in India, as well as where I am here in Indiana, that advertise what kind of seed you're growing and what kind of pesticides you're growing right there on the roadside. You get a little kickback sometimes from the company. Uh, but equally as often, it's just fun to be thought of as a good farmer who's got this seed. You can perform that good farmerness through your good choices. Again, that neoliberal framing to anyone who might come by. What organic agriculture offered was a recognition of that social purpose of farming for a lot of people because it changed the rules of that stage. It said there's more than one path to success through yields because frankly, organic agriculture in the cotton sector provided... A really bad option for yields. You couldn't really compete in that. And I've seen studies that are done in uh, field trials at ag stations that show some competitiveness there, which, which is great. But in practice, it was never something that I observed and it really wasn't the main benefit of organic farming. The main benefit there was providing these other ways to be successful and to that perform- that performance angle to be seen as successful for doing some other option, for being part of a cooperative, for avoiding sprays in some way, for applying some complicated homemade pest mixture and moving that out. What these are in effect are new ways of gaining social capital. They're new ways of gaining even celebrity. If you could become well-known as one of these people, you might have members of parliament coming and talk to you. You might have visiting scientists like me come and talk to you. You might (laughs) have uh, people from the media coming and profiling you. Sometimes people could make a a quite nice side hustle off of that. And I've gotten some pushback uh, from people who who hear this word performance and say, oh, so it's illegitimate. And my response there is that it's the opposite of illegitimate. It's real because it is performed. All of this is being performed. The, The biotech growing farmers, the GM planting farmers are also performing. They're saying, look at how great it is that I can apply these inputs and be a good farmer and kill these bugs. And, uh, you know, if my neighbor sprays four times, I I should spray five to show him that I'm like even better at keeping track of these these things. Um, it's expensive. It's dangerous. But that is part of having agriculture be social. It doesn't mean that, that person is stupid or doesn't know how to track his variables. It means that agriculture is a highly competitive field. Why is it that farmers in the US will sometimes drive combines and plow fields that maybe they shouldn't be plowing at those times because it's fun to drive the tractor, because it's great to smell that upturned earth. Uh, We have erosion consequences because of that. We have soil leaching consequences because of that. We have cover cropping consequences because of that. Um, But we miss all that if we don't understand agriculture as a kind of performance. And we miss what some of these alternatives like organic ag where instead of being choice overwhelmed, the program tells you this is the seed you're planting, and then you plant it. Um, we miss the, the opportunities and the constraints of that. Uh, in, in both cases, there are ways to be seen and ways to see yourself as being successful. Um, they're just a lot more dramatic in many cases on the side of the BT cotton planting, the GM planting farmers, not because like GM seeds are bad, has nothing to do with the technology. It's really because the technology is embedded within this larger unilineal view of success that is high yields, high investments. Um, You are successful under these very specific conditions of having particularly great kinds of yields. By broadening out that stage of performance, and broadening out the ways to really see yourself and be seen as successful, organic offers a lot of ways to do well in farming that have nothing to do with growth and yields.
2: Yeah, I I almost feel like you complicate that though with uh, with your conversation on on organic between chapters five and six, where you you on on one hand you have the you have that performance of the of the farmer who's like, yeah, I, I did all of these things. I, I created my own traps. I created my own formulas. And now I'm this kind of model for successful a- agriculture for successful farming in my, in my own community. And then you had other people that were, were like, I'm only doing what the, the NGO or, or, or what these, these people who are giving me the seeds tell me to do. Um, so i it, it seems like there there is a little bit of uh even in that performance and and that the ability to um to to find these new avenues with with the organic it's it's still a little bit complex yeah that's the
1: anthropology way I guess is that no one's allowed to get off without any kind of <laughs> critique or criticism um I mean so that's true and and part of why I thought it was so important to bring up that side of things is that i think it's easy to fall into a trap of saying oh look we've got a new alternative stage so like even if you follow this line of argument about performance and build the stage and have stability you could still come away from that conversation and say okay great (laughs) organic is a better technology make sure everybody does this regulation and then all the problems will be solved and that's really the wrong takeaway From this because it's not what is there on the ground ethnographically. That's not the observations of human phenomena that that I saw and wrote about and people told me about. Um, These people who have adopted the new ways of being successful do so because they're subsidized um, economically and also socially by programs and other kinds of, of infrastructure. The people for whom this was like a lot of work and kind of a hassle, they're also part and parcel here. And so if programs don't recognize the ways in which they need to reach out to these people or they need to like lower those burdens to people who aren't really willing to like evangelize for them or to take on this mantle of, of being a celebrity farmer or a model farmer in that way, you're going to lose those people. And the whole thing collapses in on itself because it's very difficult to be doing organic agriculture all by yourself if you're surrounded by other people who are spraying. And you've got no other supports there. This, um, this this search to find like the solution to everything is a... It, it sets us up to fetishize these technological solutions to really thorny sociopolitical problems. Cooperatives can help with some of this. Um, land distribution can help with some of this. Redistribution of resources, even on the the local level of within a village, um, are a big part of this, and that comes from this larger political, really recognition that if one person doesn't go along with this, then the whole system might collapse. Even if one person might be benefiting from it more, or if one person has to, like in a sense here, pay higher ties and taxes as a result of of their success within that system, I think it offers. This, this framing of performance and this way of looking at these two economic systems and political and ecological systems, it, it offers us a lot of helpful lessons beyond just which seed should I plant in rural Telangana uh, about ways in which these kinds of new ecological and economic conditions are possible. And why interventions like this that might offer some kind of utopian solution, high-tech changing the genetic code of life, or uh, lower tech, building out a different kind of supply chain. It's really important to understand the farmer centric conditions of why these things succeed in the first place, if we want to continue building them out uh, better. And we, we have to pay attention to the people who are kind of meh on, on these great solutions that might work really, really well for even a couple of people. Because they're an important part of the larger community as a whole and its success and and thus the the success of these kinds of interventions in an in objectively um difficult situation for a lot of people. Poverty, ecological degradation, unjust global political economic conditions.
2: Yeah. I mean that's I, I think that's a that's a really good place to uh to to wrap up because I I think it just hits hits the head on on a, a lot of things that you're talking about in this book and and we've we've taken up so much of your time and and I want to thank you for for coming in and uh, and and giving this interview because um it's such a there's so many important things within within your text that um I I think we can take out of not just about agriculture, but about other parts of our, of our neoliberal society. But, um, before we go, I I would like to ask you our, our traditional final question. What, what are you, what's on the, uh, what's on the chopping floor now? What are you, what are you up to?
1: Yeah. Uh, one fun thing about being an anthropologist is that you get to have a lot of different interests. And so I've got projects now that are looking at kind of similar questions Around what are the connections between our cultural ideas about being a good land manager or being a good farmer or just being a good member of a community? And how do these translate into things that might be, that we might think of as sustainable? Um, And so, on the macro scale, uh, I'm working with great colleagues based out of relationships from St. Louis, uh, looking into. Ideas of sustainability and heritage agriculture and degrowth in Eastern Europe, especially Bosnia, and the ways in which agrobiodiversity can sustain sustain itself or be sustained through things like climate change uh, and genocide and war and political upheaval. Uh, And then on the very micro side of things, I'm I'm having a lot of fun getting back to my roots, looking at uh, heritage decision making on the bacterial level. Uh, working with a, a colleague, Joseph Orkin, uh, who's a geneticist on fermentation practices and the ways in which our our heritage recipes and our rediscovery of uh, slow fermented foods has real impacts on things, including the preservation of distinctive, diverse microbes in fermented foods, but also uh, our human health and well-being in our own human microbiomes and the ways in which, you know, field decision-making is then influenced by culinary decision-making, which then influences the literal stuff that we're made of. So it's all about sustainability and it's all about how we perform and practice and and make the world around us and hopefully uh, how we build systems uh, that can last periods of crisis.
2: Yeah, that all sounds so so intriguing. I'm excited to... uh to learn what, what you come up with in your, in your conclusions. And, and hopefully when you, when you, uh, publish another book, we can have you back on. Yeah, that'd be great, Matt. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much again for, uh, for coming on and, um, we'll talk to you again soon.
1: Okay. Sounds good. See you next
2: time. All right. Bye-bye.